This morning we are studying 2 Corinthians again. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, I forgot to take note about how far we were, so I may have to have see if you've heard some of this before. You can let me know. But 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we, I believe, were finishing verse 8. I don't know. Did we read the cross-references for verse 8? Did anybody read from Joel and Acts 2? I think we did, didn't we? Yeah, it sounds familiar. In the last days, I'll pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. That passage, that we were, yeah, I think we talked about that. Okay, well, let's begin by uh, asking the Lord's blessing on our Sunday morning and our, our class. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that we can gather in your name week by week to um, encourage one another, exhort one another, comfort one another uh, with the Scriptures that our hearts may be uh, filled with hope in through the Gospel, that we might grow closer to you, that we might know you better, that we might uh, avail ourselves of the means of grace. And we pray for those uh, beloved saints who listen in around the world. And Lord, that they may also sense the fellowship that they have with you and in some way with us as we open together the Scriptures and explore the details and the exciting things about our mutual salvation. So we thank you for this opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this morning, as I said, we were discussing verse... Um, eight. I think that the only thing I haven't done was I had a couple quotations from some scholars on the topic, and I see. I don't think I read this one. I read that the thing about the various things the law does that I thought was so good from the, uh, Mr. Garland. He has some more summaries of this verse here that I wanted to read to you. And again, remember. The greater context is we have an extended uh, analogical argument that's based on what God did in the Old Covenant and the experience that they had with Moses going up on the mount, roughly taken from Exodus chapter 34. So this entire long section that we're studying is an analogy based on the glory of the Old Covenant and the glory of the New Covenant. And... Paul is showing how many different ways the old was inferior to the new. You know, he's written on stones versus written on hearts, written uh, the law uh, on stone versus um, uh, the, the Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit and so on. So, uh, Mr. Garland uh, is, is saying this. The difference is that the one is connected to death and condemnation. Halfman makes the important point that Paul's ministry of the Spirit differed from Moses' ministry of death because it allows others to encounter the glory of God without being destroyed. Now that part of the analogy was, again, remember they had to stay away from the mountain because if they touched it, they'd die. Okay, And so and even, even God's reflected glory on Moses' face had to be veiled. So because of the hardness of heart and under the Old Covenant, the glory was not really accessible to the people. It was a fearful thing and something they had to sort of stand back from lest it would kill them. But in the New Testament, the, the, the glory of God's new covenant promises is for all the people and the glory of God is seen in the gospel and through a work of the Holy Spirit, we can participate. 
So one of the great differences in the New Testament is the full participation of the people of faith, and they don't have to stand at a distance. Then secondly, the giving of the law on Mount Sinai and the ministry of Moses came with a magnificent glory, despite all its deficiencies, which we now recognize more clearly after Christ's coming. The glory of God revealed in the face of Christ that shines into our hearts, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, is far greater. For it will never be abolished, and looking at it does not lead to death, but allows believers to begin the transformation into the perfect glory, uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. Paul's point is that if the ministry of Moses had glory and power, whether it was fading, being annulled, or covered up, how much more glory and power will the gospel ministry have that does not fade, has eternal effects, and does not need to be shrouded to guard sinners from God's magnificent, uh, majestic holiness that might otherwise destroy them. The contrast is between the effects of the two ministries. And so the glory of God is being preached through the gospel, and those who believe will experience eternal glory, and it will never fade away. And so you see that really summarized in the book of Revelation as well. So having said that, I have something else I was going to look for here. Uh, Where's Keith when you need him? (laughs) He always has something to say. Gives me time to flip through my notes here. He's up north uh, with his family this weekend, up in the Arrowhead. Bob, I wanted to say something about that lesser to greater. Yes, please. Uh, It's interesting that the world would look at that as being that the the word being given by the Holy Spirit and then put down on paper that that the world would look at that almost as being the lesser because since the words don't have any meaning it's almost the total opposite of what God meant it for. Yeah, I I used that analogy before. Uh, I, I. I think I probably used it in the pageant debate, but I, I intended to. Well, I can't remember everything I said or didn't say. It was over like three hours. But I, I've used this analogy before. I think maybe in this class, if, what if you actually found the Ten Commandments on stone but couldn't read Hebrew? What good would they do you? Okay? You could put them on your mantle, but do you suppose it would make you closer to God if you actually had the stones? No, it wouldn't. It, it, the power is in the words, and the words came from God. And I, I wrote an article that made a similar analogy. I, I don't know if you read it. It was on the Christian Worldview Network. I wrote an article uh, called Why Icons Can't Preach the Gospel. And, and in that analogy, what I did was I, I, I this was a, uh, a story I made up to illustrate a point, okay? So suppose there was a missionary who um, really didn't have a lot of time or money and it was going to take years to learn a language and to get a theological training and all the things and to go through missions boards and finally go out on the mission field. And so this guy was very resourceful and decided, no, I'm going to save a lot of time and money. So what he does is he buys a really big cross, you know, the really nice, beautiful, big stainless steel cross. And he, and he gets enough money to, to have a, a freight cartage plane to bring it over to a remote island where the people had never heard the gospel and he didn't know their language. And he stuck the cross up up in the main crossroads on the island where everybody would see it. And then he left. Okay? And so everybody on the island saw the cross. 
the question is this. Would anybody there have the opportunity to believe the gospel? Absolutely not. Because there's no way they would know what that was. Now, they may even think it was a supernatural thing because it showed up and they didn't see anybody put it up. He puts it up in the middle of the night and leaves. Well, look, maybe the gods sent us down here. Okay? And, but absent any words in their own language, this object cannot convey meaning. And they would have to imagine their own meaning. They may think that one of their demigods or nature gods did it or whatever. They couldn't possibly know that it meant that Jesus Christ, uh, the eternal Son, the one who came from eternity and lived a sinless life and, and shed His blood to avert God's wrath against sin and was bodily raised from the dead, that object would be totally void of meaning to those people. And the only reason the object means something to us is because we already know the story. So you know the story first, and you can decide, a culture or a group or a church or whoever, can decide, we know this story, so we decide this symbol means that story just because we decided it does. All right? Well, then it means something to you, but it's only because you first knew the story. So this idea that we don't, that words can't convey meaning, this postmodern idea, is an attack against the gospel. And I got the idea for the article by a video I saw of the emergent church where it showed they had this wooden cross in their service and the, and the people that came to the service were writing their names on it. And I thought, well, that's a nice thing, but what I found out from... But they don't actually preach the cross. In other words, they don't preach the blood atonement, repentance, faith, and all that. They just have the object and you write your name on it. But how do you know what that object means? It's, it, the words convey the meaning. And by the way... Um, I, I'm neutral about objects. Uh, actually, I don't care for them, but um, I'm sort of a Baptist that way. I'm not neutral. I don't like them. But, but I'm not trying here to, uh, to be the person who says you can't have objects. But people say, well, you've got to have a cross. You've got to have the cross in your church. I said, of course. We preach it every Sunday. But no, you, you have to have the object. I said, okay, show me one verse in the Bible where the word cross means a religious symbol. Just show me one verse. Where, that's, where in the Bible did it ordain that this piece of metal means the gospel? Or wood or whatever you made it out of, ceramic or whatever. Well, it, it never is addressed that way. The only literal cross in the Bible is the actual one that Jesus died on. All right? And so, sometime later in church history, people decided that that would be a good Christian symbol. I, I'm not... Uh, some people will be stricter than me and say that it's a sin. You can't have it. I'm not saying that. I, I guess I would fall in the category that it's within your liberty to determine that that symbol means something to you. But it's not ordained in the Bible. I see some of you have crosses. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> not trying to make you... <laughs> <laughs> People squirming here. <laughs> no, no, don't don't feel bad. I, I I don't because it does mean. Okay, I'm not saying you can't. We can't do that, or we can't have it in the church. Now I'm now I'm embarrassed myself. <laughs> uh, but what what we know it means is because of the words. That's all I'm saying. And if somebody asks you about it, if you have a cross, you say, what it means to me is Jesus died for sins. That's fine. And in our old building, we had one 
up on the platform, and that's fine. It's within liberty to do that. But if you don't have it, it doesn't mean you don't like the cross. Okay. I don't have one. <laughs> you don't have one. <laughs> I, I was just going to say that, you know, when you, you do have those kind of sim- symbolisms, and uh, whether they be on your person or they be on your, your vehicle, uh, that you uh, should be aware of your walk. Because if, you know, you get in an accident and, you know, how people are, the non-believers will be gesturing to you with certain gestures that you uh, don't gesture back and such. That's a good point. I heard a story about that once. This guy was, this will date me, I guess, but the story was this guy was sitting in traffic and there was a person behind honking. Did you hear this story? Honk, 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 honk. And, and the traffic was going nowhere, and this guy's getting madder and madder. It's like, well, quit honking. Where am I going to go? And so finally he got so mad, he got out and walked over to the car, knocked on the window, and said, quit honking. It's a traffic jam. And the person in the car pointed to his bumper sticker and said, honk if you love Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> now, that would be embarrassing. <laughs> So I, that, that illustrates what you're saying. You have to be careful what bumper sticker you have, depending on how you drive. Right. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. Robert, yes. I thought it was uh, interesting that uh, I, we could take a lesson, I guess, from maybe the Old Testament when um, God authorized Moses to uh, lift up the fiery serpent. And uh, when the people looked upon the bronze serpent, uh, they would be healed. And then we look later in Second Kings, and it describes how the people... Um, had actually broken pieces. Well, actually what they had done is began to burn incense to this same serpent that um, was actually raised up previously for a different purpose. So I guess you have to be careful what... Okay, so that's a good... Robert, very astute observation. Thank you. That's very astute. So they're the same... When God authorized it, it was from Him, and it brought healing. But when God didn't authorize it and they made it into a, uh, an object of, that they think makes them closer to God, became idolatrous. Very good point. Now, we should be careful. So let's just, what's our position then? Symbols, if they symbolize the true gospel and the message of the gospel is what we believe in, are neutral. But if we think you can go down to a store and buy an object that will make you closer to God because you own it, then they have a word, they have a name for you. Roman Catholic. No, no. Okay. Okay. So, whoa. I'm gonna, I'm gonna really get in trouble before this day's over. Yeah. yeah, so, so you can't go buy holiness. Did somebody else, you can't buy holiness at the store. It comes as a free gift from God through the blood atonement. Alright. Enough on that. We better go to another verse here. Wait, I had a no. I had a quote from this uh, Barnett too. I wanted to share with you. As an Israelite, uh, this is Paul. This is about Paul's, and he thinks that Paul's words are somehow autobiographical about his own experience. As an Israelite, he Paul had been blinded to the glory of Moses's face, but now on the Damascus road. Having seen the glory to which Moses' glory pointed, that is, toward the glorified Christ, and having turned to that Lord, Paul has come to an experience the blessings 
of freedom and life through the Spirit. How much more glorious then is the ministry of the Spirit to the person previously blind? Now that's a very good illustration. Paul, as a Pharisee, and as a very um, motivated Jewish person who believed the Old Covenant, he said in Philippians 3, as to righteousness that is found in the law, blameless. So he would have loved the Ten Commandments and, and kept them the best he could. Although in Romans 7 he admits later he was failing the tenth one. Thou shalt not covet. But uh, he didn't see it that way before his conversion. He didn't see that he was a lawbreaker before his conversion. So in a sense, though he loved the law of Moses and he honored the law of Moses and tried to obey the law of Moses, he was blind to his true glory because it was veiled. And, and so on. So what Barnett is saying is that this section here, Paul is almost writing autobiographically how God had removed the veil for Paul and he received the Spirit and then he gazed at the glory. And he saw that the glory was in the resurrected Christ, not the tablets of stone. Isn't that fabulous? Um, there's a verse, there's a, fab, a verse of a fabulous hymn called At Calvary. That's the song we sing that, uh, that hymn sometimes at Calvary. One of the great lines in there is, Then I trembled at the law I spurned. Okay? And it, that's what happens when we're convicted by the Holy Spirit. Because before, um, uh, Brian, you were telling me a story about how you were, you, you were talking to somebody about the Ten Commandments. That, and, and when you do that, if somebody's not converted, they can be shown that they have broken them and that they broke God's law. But it takes the Holy Spirit to convict the heart that you need a Savior. So the law has its use, but the Holy, we always remember it's the Holy Spirit that convicts us that we really are lawbreakers. Because Paul did not even see, did not see himself as a lawbreaker until he met the resurrected Christ on the, on the, on the, on the road there. Okay, now let's get, move to the next verse here. Verse 9. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 9. For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, how much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory? So notice these these lesser to greater, lesser to greater. The in the analogy, the letter in the spirit, uh, death in versus the spirit, stones versus hearts, fading glory, permanent glory, condemnation, righteousness. I talked about this earlier. Now here we have it right in front of us. The old covenant it was called a ministry of condemnation. Now and it says that it has glory. Notice the word glory is used many times here. And in fact, ten times in verses 7 through 11. So that's our theme. Much more, okay, here's greater to lesser. When you see that phrase, how much more, or much more, that is a Hebrew type of logical argument from the lesser to the greater. If the little thing's true, the big thing is for sure true. If God cares for a sparrow, how much more does he care for you? Right? So the much more here is an analogy. Does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory? Now, there's two, um, not to get too technical, but we've talked about the genitive case in, in Greek before. These are both in the genitive, and in this case it's a subjective genitive, and so you would translate it this way. The ministry that condemns, in other words, this condemnation was a result of that ministry, or the ministry that makes righteousness. Makes righteous. So the righteousness is the result of the ministry of the new covenant. So what literally happened, well, just think of the story of what actually really did happen. What happened when Moses came down with the Ten Commandments? 
Come on, you saw the movie. <laughs> well, they were they had the golden calf. <coughs> they were worshiping the golden calf, and Moses got angry and he broke them. And he and he made them grind up the golden calf. You know the story. Okay, so they had the commands of God, but their own sin was condemned by those con- commands. Um, and, and and so the result was condemnation, and that whole generation ultimately died in the wilderness. But there, but the ministry of righteousness means uh, what does that term righteousness mean here, uh, Brian? Well, justification. The world would think that they can do works to justify themselves. Whereas this verse tells us that unless you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not be justified. Thank you. Absolutely. Righteousness means, and it is very much related to justification, righteousness means right standing before God. Okay? So the concept that's so important here is that God is the judge of the universe. God is perfectly righteous. God cannot lie. And God said that the wages of sin is death. Right? And so the perfectly righteous judge cannot declare a sinner righteous without violating his own standards of justice. Okay? And so what God did was he sent the righteous one, Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life and perfectly kept the law, who died for us. And it says in Romans 3 that he did so that he might be the just, be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And so God isn't just saying, okay, I didn't mean it. Because God cannot lie. He can't say, well, all right, I decided to change. That's what most people think before they're converted. Honestly, if you talk, if you do any amount of witnessing to people, if you ask them what they think, Brian, you told me a little story about this just this morning. You ask somebody, okay, have you broken God's laws? Yeah, I've stolen, I've lied. Well, are you going to go to heaven? What do they usually say? Yes. Okay, so why are you going to go to heaven? Well, because God's a nice guy and He understands. And so what? this is Satan blinding minds. That's what it looks like when Satan blinds the mind. Because what Satan is telling them is that God doesn't mean what He says. And He's not really going to be the just judge. He's going to, in His role of judge, decide, well, I don't feel like I really need to do justice. But God cannot lie, and He is the just judge, and He must do justice. So therefore, the justice was taken by Jesus. He, the, uh, remember this verse, if you want to have one verse, one gospel verse you can say to anybody, Jesus Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. Isn't that 1 Peter 3.18? Having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit. 1 Peter 3.18. Very good verse to memorize. Because if you get in a pinch or you end up on an airplane uh, seat and somebody next to you turns out to be an unsaved person who gets into a religious dialogue with you and you, and you, and you don't have your Bible, what are you going to say? What are, well, what's the Bible say? Well, memorize that verse. 1 Peter 3.18 Jesus Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. Because the whole, all the important things are there. The once for all. You notice, why does it say once for all? Because that puts to death all the world's religions where you have to sacrifice over and over and over again. 
Even the Old Covenant, they had to offer the sacrifice over and over and over again. But Jesus died once for all. Now, without that justification through belief in Jesus Christ, if you, upon believing in Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit, then would follow sanctification. Because if you are not sanctified, why would anybody ever want to do anything? On our own, we can't do good. Yeah, and uh, that's a good point. And that's also part of this ministry of righteousness. So the way it works is the first, logically, now remember I used that Latin phrase, ordo salutis, order of salvation. It's a, theologically de- it's a theological debate in systematic theology books. You can look it up. I don't try to confuse people with that, but it's, it's really, there's so many things that happen instantaneously. The sanctification is a process, but instantaneously, uh, at the moment of conversion, all these things happen. We have faith, true saving faith. We have regeneration. We have justification. Okay? We, we, uh, we, these things are all true, and we're sanctified legally. We're made holy. We become saints. All right? That's all instantaneous. So the ordo salutis is just for people that have too much time on their hands. No, I, I shouldn't say that, but, uh, I, I think it is a val- I'm not belittling the necessity of having a good doctrine of ordo salutis, but even MacArthur, when he talks about it in his book, The Gospel According to the Apostles, he has a footnote on this and he talks about it and he says, these things really happen instantaneously, but we, we discuss them logically as far as priority, what happens first, second, third, fourth. Yes. Is there a difference between being born again and being saved? Is that two terms describing the same uh, thing? Uh, I, only those who are born again are actually saved in the sense of sozo, meaning rescued from the peril of hell. So that would be the only pe- people that applies to. Now, when we talk about you know, believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved, that's meaningful only if the person understands in the context what saved means. Because the word sozo in the Greek for salvation, for to save, means to rescue from serious peril. So, for example, it's used in different ways in the Bible. When Paul was on that boat and it went shipwrecked, it uses the word sozo, they were saved. What they meant was they were saved from drowning in the Mediterranean Sea. Now, so if you say to somebody, believe on the Lord Jesus and thou shalt be saved, that's the truth. But unless they understand what peril they're in, they can't understand what saved means. It could mean saved from poverty or saved from disease or saved from having an unhappy life. But they need to know rescued from the wrath of God. Yes. Well, yeah, you can ask some people if they're saved, they'll say yes. And then you can say, are you born again? And they don't know what you're talking about. Whereas in Matthew, they, you know, Jesus says... I tell you the truth, you must be born again. Yeah, in John. Yeah, yeah, you must be born again. Okay, so, well, even the term born again doesn't mean the same thing to people. Have you heard, seen people like, uh, let's say, some country western guy that um, uh, got on the drugs and lost his, you know, record company deal and all this stuff, and then he, he decides to go to rehab and, 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 then, and then, he, then he's back, you know, making money again, and he says, well, I've been born again. All right, but it doesn't mean that he believed on the Lord Jesus. Is that I got a, my life is back the way I want it to be? So even that term has to be explained in a Christian context. Yes. Doesn't uh, uh, the word "sold soul" and "salvation" mean uh, 
saved physically and spiritually? I mean, it's an all-encompassing salvation. Yes, ultimately it is. That's a very good point. Um, there's, a, there's also sort of an order to this. And as Bill said, it's an all-encompassing salvation. But the spiritual salvation comes first. God declares the sinner just. And we have right standing before God. Then saved from... Ah, there's a good verse on that. There's a section of verses. Turn with me. That's a very good uh, point, Bill. Let me show you the tenses of salvation. Fabulous section here. Um, Romans 5. Turn to Romans 5 and look, look at the tenses of salvation. Past, present, and future. Then I'll give you a little a memory device to remember them. If I can remember it. <laughs> I, I knew one one time. <laughs> yeah, what, is, what happens besides your hair turning gray, right? Um, look with verse 8. Romans 5 and verse 8. This, this is a very good cross-reference for what we're discussing right now. But it says, But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, so this was God's action toward undeserving sinners. Now, look at verse 9. Much more than having now been justified. Now, that's, uh, I'm guessing, based on the, how the New American Standard translates things. It's the perfect tense. So, perfect tense means something happened in the past, the effects of which are still true. So, we were justified and we still are. That's perfect tense. Having now been justified by His blood... Now look at the tenses change. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. So that means that this is talking about eschatological salvation. That in the day of the Lord, at the end when the wrath of God is poured out upon the world, we'll be saved from it. So that's why it's future tense. It's talking about God's eschatological wrath. How much more that's a lesser to greater as well. Isn't that great? It's wonderful. Yeah, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. How much more? As a, as a, you get a, a gold star for being a student. I've been called worse. Very astute. That's a good thing. That's the best compliment. An astute reading is a good compliment. We shall be saved through him, for while we were enemies, now look at the tense change, we were reconciled. Past tense. So the having now been justified means we were justified in the past and we continue to be so. We shall be saved from the wrath. And then having been reconciled, then it says we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, past. Much more having been reconciled, perfect, we shall be saved by His life, future. And only this, not only this, but we also exult present in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now let me see if I remember uh, my acrostic. I think I do. Or the memory device. Concerning the past, in the past we are saved from the penalty of our sin. Concerning the past we're saved from the penalty of our sin. That means having been reconciled, having been justified, having been forgiven, all those things. Concerning the present, we are being saved from the power of sin. Okay, penalty, past, present, power. In other words, Romans 6, 
have, now that we've been buried with Christ and we're alive with Him, no longer let sin reign in your mortal body. Because present yourselves as a members, your members as agents of righteousness. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that's what it says in Romans 6. So, concerning the present, God is delivering us progressively from the power of sin. Concerning the future, He will deliver us from the presence of sin. Does that, now that, that's something you have to remember. Penalty, power, presence. Past, present, future. The tenses of salvation. Dick, we did that on the radio one time when we went through Romans. Um, so that, that's very helpful. Good, that's a good point. Now, so when it says that the new covenant is a ministry of righteousness, I believe that all three of those tenses are included in the ministry of righteousness. The ministry of righteousness is that God reconciles sinners to himself and he forgives their sin. So they're delivered from the penalty of their own sin. That, what's that? Could you say the three again? Okay. The concern, the, uh, delivered from the penalty of sin, then the power of sin, and finally the presence of sin. We'll be totally sinless in eternal eternity. And we'll live in a sinless environment. <laughs> so that will be much different than the one we live in now. Okay? Now, that's all of those things are what are encompassed in this concept, the ministry of righteousness. He's taking a vile sinner, preaching the gospel, and for those who believe, God cancels out their debt. There's so many terms used in the New Testament that are related to salvation, and they're all important. They're different nuances. For instance, the term redemption. All right? Is this this all what you often describe as the already not yet? Yes, already not yet is very much involved with that. See, already we're forgiven. Already we have victory over sin. It doesn't rule us like a taskmaster and we're making us its slaves. Because now we're slaves to righteousness, but we're not, but we still have sin. We still have a battle to fight with sin, and we'll have that battle until the rapture or until we go to be with the Lord. And, um, so that's the already and the not yet is things like, for example, in Romans 8, it says that we are eagerly awaiting the redemption of the body. Okay? And so when you talked about holistic salvation, Bill, that's part of that. Yes, it is holistic, but some of it isn't to the future. You know, some people say, well, we already have the redemption of the body, so if you get sick, that proves your sins aren't forgiven. No, no. I, I wrote an article about that many, many years ago. Um, so, but the redemption of the body happens when, the, at the resurrection. And that's part of salvation, is that you get a resurrection body, and that one won't have any problems. Amen. <laughs> Yes. Well, if we if we keep confessing and, and believing that uh, Jesus Christ died for our sins and that that the salvation belongs to us in the future, and have a um, an ongoing consciousness of what He did on the cross, wouldn't that affect salvation in our physical bodies? Um, well, the Bible talks about gifts of healings, and I think it's certainly um, you know the idea of the earnest of the Spirit. We have the earnest, which is like a down payment. We can call for the elders and pray for sick people, but these are temporary. Let's say a healing today would be like the resurrection of Lazarus. Does that make sense? Uh, because it's 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 a nice thing, but it's temporary because Lazarus died again. 
All right, so the ultimate, so healings we receive now, whether they're by natural means or supernatural, are still patching up the body that needs to be resurrected. But I'm strictly in favor of being healthy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this, I know it's hard to achieve, and it gets harder as the years go by, but... All right, so the ministry of condemnation, back to verse 9, the ministry of condemnation, how much more ministry of righteousness? So the one is the lesser. Now, we, we're not saying that the Old Testament did not predict the ministry of righteousness and that you can't even see it there in type. You see it in type like uh, Abraham bringing Isaac up to Mount Moriah uh, with the wood on his back, you know, you see a type of Christ, a type of that's looking forward to God will provide a lamb, and it turns out to be Jesus as the Lamb of God. And but it, but the, but yet the people were looking off into the distance and, and not seeing it in the same way that we do now that we're on the scene of history. The ministry of righteousness. Now, have you heard of the term for, forensic justification? Forensic. All right, what, is, what does that mean? Legal. Somebody said that, right? Legal. That's the right answer. Now, that term was used at the time of the Reformation, and it was disputed, and the Council of Trent called the doctrine of Luther and Calvin and the other Reformers legal fiction. Legal fiction. Because they talked about forensic justification. And what it means is this, that God... As the judge, and the idea of a judge is a legal idea, acquits a sinner and declares him righteous. And he does so legally. Now, the reason that forensic justification was disputed by Rome in the Council of Trent was that they, that's, that was the heart of the debate. That was the key issue. Because Rome says, God will never declare someone just unless they are actually just. In other words, all sin must be gone from that person first before God will ever call them justified. Whereas Luther and the other reformers said, no, God declares the sinner justified because he has the imputed righteousness of Christ. And it's not our righteousness is Christ. And therefore, we have forensic or legal justification. Yes. So then Rome uh, uh, disputes that, and that leaves a door open uh, for the mandatory uh, act of, of their version of communi- uh, communion, which is transubstantiation. You right. take from the wafer of the cup, they, they wave their hand over a magic golden box, and the, the wine and the wafer turn into the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, you take that, and for a given period of time, according to Catholic doctrine, you have the physical body and blood of Christ in you. But that wears off, they say, after about 15 minutes. So at least for 15 minutes, you're just. You're just. Yeah, exactly. And then, well, then the other, uh, the other, uh, and, and ideas have consequences, uh, dear ones. They really do. Your belief, uh, I, uh, if there's anything I've learned in being in 30 some minutes, I just gave, uh, I just gave Dick something I wrote. I found that last night. I was sorting through old papers, and I found a paper I wrote in 1973 when I was 22 years old. So I, uh, I'm, uh, based on the Greek text of John 
8, 30-33. So Dick is going to see how bad I was back then. He's going to look at that. <laughs> but uh, I actually, I was, I was kind of surprised. I was really on the right track right then. I got kind of got off track after that when I started chasing experiences. But, um, oh yeah, 30, that's 35 years ago. 35 years ago. But anyhow, one thing I can tell you for sure after 35 years of, of studying the Bible and teaching the Bible is that ideas and beliefs matter. And in as, in, in as much, and, and people will say, well then, why correct error? Because nobody has all the truth. Have you ever heard that? Well, you don't have all the truth. In other words, I don't have 100% perfect beliefs because I'm a human. So then they use that to make, uh, uh, which I would agree to. I'm quite sure that of all the different things you can believe about Christian doctrine, some of mine that I believe to be true may indeed be false. I think just about anybody would have to say that. So the, the postmodernist, the emergent church, takes that argument and then says, therefore, you can't know anything. Therefore, all your beliefs are suspect, and so is everybody else's, so you can't correct error and just give up the religion it couldn't. You can't know the truth. But that's, that's a faulty argument, yes. Okay, I think what you just said, and you, you were humble about it, you said, I, I may discover more truth, is what I heard you say. Yeah. You know, okay, the Christian journey is about pursuing God and loving God. Like I started out as a Lutheran, and I believed the doctrine of grace, and the legalism was there, but it maybe held me back, but I didn't analyze it. Then, when I was an adult and struggling with life issues, I needed to get closer to God. So believe it or not, I became a practicing Catholic for two years. Okay. And the reason I did was wrong-headed because I thought if they, if the Catholic Church has all these authority figures, maybe they will help me have more clout with God. Okay. And so obviously <laughs> that didn't work. So, you know, now where I'm with people that I can relate to as people here at Twin City Fellowship who are genuinely searching for a live relationship with God through the risen Christ and through his blood and all of that, Amen. then then it's like it's ongoing. And it's each step, it's it's like you were saying, it's from the lesser to the greater. and But it isn't a search for my perfection. It's a search to be in God's grace and to live His truth, Good. whatever that is. Thank you, Gretchen. God bless you. <laughs> Amen. So, so therefore, uh, what, what we're saying is that we need to have a, the solid foundation of what God has done established. That we are forgiven. And that we, that he does love us. And that we do have access to the Father. And that he is going to finish the work that he began in us. And if there are some things, oh, I was saying beliefs have consequences. Here's what I'm saying. This is just a pastoral statement based on, I believe it's scriptural, but certainly based on a lot of years of experience. Whatever we believe that is wrong ultimately does hurt us in some way. Because Jesus says the truth will set you free. Okay, so the more we uh, study the Bible so that whatever wrong beliefs we might have get corrected, the more of the truth we do have, and there's freedom in knowing the truth. It's liberating, 
It's exciting. It's joyful. It's hopeful. All kinds of great things. So, all I'm saying is this. Whatever false beliefs I may have that I don't know I have, I spent a lifetime studying the Scripture hoping that God will correct them. Does that make sense? And because I know that I'm going to be better off believing what's true than believing something that's not true. Now, the people that say, well, nobody has all the truth, therefore let's all give up, or let's just teach anything we want and nobody should correct it, have basically given up. And Francis Schaeffer calls that crossing the line of despair. We can't know, we can't know, we can't know, so let's give up and have an existential experience, a blind leap of faith, and call it good enough. Now, we were talking about legal justification. Beliefs have consequences. Now, let me illustrate that in the the battle with Rome. Oh, did you want to say something? Yes. Yeah, Yeah? Yeah, for the last while. (laughs) But just a simple thing. What's the check and balance system that you've got built in? Because you're going to miss it once in a while. And other than the fact that we're going to continue to go back to the Word in your preaching, there's still one more step. The check and balance system is elders and, and a congregation. And being a Berean, right? Yes, being Berean. But the, there's a certain truth to this, although the concept is misused. That in modern theology, they talk about a hermeneutical community. But the way they use it, I totally disagree with. Because they're saying, nobody can know the truth, but we can have our community. And our little community has our truth. And it doesn't have to line up with anybody else's. And so, again, it's just that's postmodern. I don't believe that. But I do believe that there's a community of people opening the Scriptures and searching the truth and holding one another accountable to what God said. The Bereans, exactly. And that that's not just me in my office. That's us opening the Bible in, um, back there and other people saying, okay, now why do you say this and here's, what it is, here's how I read it and trying to find out what it, what it means. Yes? I have a question. I came in late Maybe you discussed this already. But, um, you know, you hear so many um, people say, once saved, always saved. And uh, so what do you do about a situation where a person, you know that they've been saved, you know that they were born again and for a time lived for the Lord, and got into maybe not, uh, maybe a, a house church that didn't really teach the fundamentals Okay. Of the faith. And then this person um, did something that was a horrendous thing to do and now feels he's committed the unforgivable sin and cannot um, ever come back to the Lord again or, or that he's damned forever, that he's lost okay. and won't even pray because of that. I've, that's a pastoral issue that I've run into many times. And... What I believe is this. If somebody is truly converted, God will do whatever it takes to bring them back. I mean, in fact, Paul talks about turning someone over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that their soul might be saved. But I believe that what, but they will come back. They actually will come back. Now, uh, in the case of people who are believing they committed the unpardonable sin, so they can't come back, one or two things is true. And I'll tell you what I think is usually true. It's usually Christians who are worried about that. Uh, the, the, the unconverted person's basic belief is that he's okay no matter how bad he is. The, the good Lord will understand. I mean, you can go into a prison and talk to murderers. Are you going to go to heaven? Oh, sure. Well, well why are you going to go to heaven? Well, the good Lord will understand. 
Okay? Now, the Christian who maybe is poorly taught or is not walking uh, the way that God wants may very well come under uh, horrible condemnation and feel, believe that. And so Satan is the accuser of brethren and he says, you commit the unpardonable sin, you might as well just sin all you can and because it's hopeless for you. And I say that that's a lie and that uh, the, the, the people who, if somebody actually had committed that total act of apostasy, they wouldn't be uh, beating themselves up over it. They'd be out sinning all the more. So I, I would urge that person to come to the blood of Jesus where there's forgiveness. Anybody who come, is willing to come on God's terms, Jesus said, I'll no way cast out. And, and But the person could actually be an unsaved person who's just throwing it up as a smokescreen so they don't have to believe the gospel. So what, I, so what I do is say, here's the terms. Are you willing to come to Jesus on his term and ask him to forgive you? And put your hands in His and believe that the blood was shed for your sins. And if they say, no, I won't do that. Or no, or if they say, no, He won't receive me. Read John, John 6. It says, no, any who come, I'll no way cast out. Right? And if, then if they won't come on those terms, that's because they don't want to. And then they have right to fear for their soul. Does that make sense? Alright. Uh, oh yeah, Luann. I was just going to make a comment about what you were talking about before with, um, um, you know, who's truth and can we know it and all of that. But didn't there, uh, many, a long time ago, the reformers or before, but there was the argument between solo scriptura and sola scriptura? Oh, that article in the Modern Reformation. Yeah, the solo is kind of a new term. Um, there's a great, that, that last issue of Modern Reformation is the best one I think they've ever published. It had a fabulous article by Michael Horton on the power of the Word of God to change people's lives. One of the best articles I've ever read. I've tried to get permission to put it on our website, but I never heard back. And there was an article about solo scriptura. Now, the Reformed doctrine of solo scripture means scripture alone. But it doesn't mean the individual alone with his Bible, and I don't need anybody else. That's, that's what so the guy wrote an article, and he called that position solo scriptura, which is sort of like, wild-eyed individualism, I don't need the church, I don't need any teachers, I don't need what anybody ever said before, I'm going to go sit in my own little attic with my Bible, and that's all I need. That's my solo scriptura. <laughs> solo scriptura means that the, the, there is a church, and the, and the Lord gave the scriptures to the church, and this is not just an individual thing, this is something we do together, because God has given different gifts in the church, including teachers. And that's why I use quality commentaries. You know, what my education has helped me to do is to know what a quality commentary looks like when I'm reading it and what a false or bad one looks like. Okay? And so, but I would, these people, this uh, garland that I've been quoting on St. Corinthians is fabulous. So that's a teacher. A teacher given to the church, not to give new revelation or be an authority, but to help us as we open the Bible and we try to learn. Does that make sense? That's a modern reformation. I think it must be like the April issue. I, I don't have it with me. It's in March, April. I, I'm awaiting permission. But I'll tell you what. They, I think they'll be happy. Go get modern reformation, the last issue. Great, great articles. Okay. I, I, I don't know. I get mine through the mail. I think they have a website. Look at Google them. I think you can Google them. 
Okay, ministry of righteousness. I mean, isn't that a loaded idea? We've been talking about that ministry of righteousness here almost half of this Sunday school, and I don't feel like we wasted any time. I mean, because that's that that idea is just earth-shattering. Like like Luther said, it's a lightning bolt. Remember, I quoted him on Easter. He called it a lightning bolt. This lightning bolt does away with all the monasteries. Well, how does the lightning bolt of justification by faith do away with monasteries? Because in a monastery, you are you are severely treating your body, hoping to get closer to God, and never succeeding in doing there. You never get there. You never get there. You never get there. But when Jesus did it for you, it's a lightning bolt from God that'll change you forever. And um, ideas have consequences. I was going to talk about this justification by faith and the consequences of it. When you have the position of the Council of Trent that our doctrine they call legal fiction, what are the consequences of that idea, of the legal fiction? The consequences are, Bill mentioned one of them. You have the Mass that has to be done over and over like it were a sacrifice under the Old Covenant. Another consequence is you have this uh, the confessional and your sins keep coming back and then you've got to have somebody absolve them and they come back you have to have somebody absolve them. What's another consequence? Purgatory. Oh, did you see that? They just decided limbo doesn't exist? It was in the paper. Yeah, can you imagine all those thousands, yeah, over a thousand years babies are in limbo and now all of a sudden they're not. They get out. Because they decided it doesn't exist. Okay, that's another consequence. It never really know what the truth is because it's still being decided by the church. Another consequence. Purgatory. If God cannot declare a sinner just, because that would be legal fiction, and we can see Christians who faithfully tried to do their best all through their life, but yet they weren't perfected when they died, what are you going to do with them? Purgatory. Because you have to give a, a, a second chance to get this problem solved so that finally you can actually be just. That all, all of those things come out of one bad idea. So now do you believe me that ideas have consequences? And that's why the Reformation was a lightning bolt from God to enlighten us to justification by faith and legal forensic justification. That what this really means is that the just God of the universe who cannot lie and who cannot wink at sin and who cannot do any injustice but must execute perfect justice against all sin has become both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ because the righteous one bore our sins for us vicarious substitutionary atonement and God, based on what Jesus did, Satisfying his wrath against sin, being a propitiatory offering, it says in Romans 3, has declared us just. Hallelujah. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's the gospel that we preach. Uh, I'm going to make a note here that we have cross-references we didn't even get to on this verse. But uh, thank you. This is a very invigorating discussion about our original salvation today. Uh, We'll see you upstairs at 10.30. Help with the chairs, please.